Why, God? That's the title of the sermon, Why, God? A lot of people are asking that question after this past week. Even in the last 50 days, there have been two mass shootings. The age-old question that has been with us since the beginning of time, theologians call it the subject of theodicy. Why is there evil in this world? Why? A week ago, almost exactly at this time, this past Sunday, Devin Kelly marched into First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas, and ultimately killed 26 people and wounded 20 more. Why? Well, we know on the surface because he was a mentally deranged man. The presence of evil filled his life. But ultimately, why? Well, I'll, I'll give you an answer, and it's, it doesn't necessarily make you feel better. But if you wanted a one-word answer, it would be this. Sin. The fall of humanity, the depravity of humanity that impacts and affects every one of us. Our sin has direct implications upon others as well as others' sins has a direct implication upon us. That's ultimately why evil exists. Because of sin. Maybe you're like Friday, Robinson Crusoe's partner, as he shared with him and taught him the language and taught him about God and life. And Friday said to Robinson Crusoe, Why then not the great God kill the devil and evil people? And Robinson Crusoe told him because at the very end there would ultimately be none of us left. Ray Ortrude said, the question we probably should be asking is why not us? And the second question is, actually it was us. Because when a believer and when followers of Christ suffer, we all suffer as a body as the body of Christ. <clears throat> I want to give you a very fragile illustration. I say the word fragile because it doesn't, it doesn't fix, it doesn't explain everything, but I think it helps uh, on one degree helping us understand the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, and how do things like this even transpire. When my son was younger, uh, I got him a bike. He'd had the bikes where you had training wheels and then the little bitty bikes where you fell off. It wasn't that big a deal. But then we got him a, a bigger bike, a better bike. And uh, at the time, he would, he, I, we told him he could ride his bike to school. And he was seven or eight years old, whatever he was. And we only lived a block away. But you know, I, you know what I knew when we gave him that larger bike? You know what I knew would ultimately happen? I knew that he would ultimately have an accident that he would hurt himself, that he would fall off that bike. The only question I didn't, couldn't answer is, when's it going to happen and how bad is it going to be? But he's going to have a wreck. He's going to have an accident. And sure enough, it wasn't too long after I got him that bike. One day I was just kind of watching. I walked a few steps as he was leaving school, just kind of watch him take off. And he hit it. Concrete, spread eagle, knee skint, face, the whole thing. He gets up and he's shaking and hurting and said, I don't think I can go to school. And, you know, and I said, okay. Uh, we brought him back, patched him up, made him go to school. And he, you know, and he would go on to have, uh, to have bike wrecks that were worse than that. And um, some of you can give testimony. I know there's at least one person who could give a testimony right here today, all right, in our church. 
Some of you, um, some of you uh, allow your children to drive. You let them get in a motorized vehicle. They're 16 or 17 years old, and you let them drive on a highway. And guess what? Statistical law tells us that about 95% of them are going to have an accident before they turn 25. Okay, it's just going to happen. They're going to be in some kind of accident, hopefully minor, but some wreck, or somebody's going to run into them. It's going to happen. So let me ask you this. Are you a bad parent? Are you evil? Because all you have to do is never let them drive, never let them get in a car, put them in the house, and keep them there. Isn't that what a good parent would do? Wouldn't I have been a better parent to never let my son have a bike or ride a bike? If I know he's going to have a wreck, why would I knowingly buy him one and give him the very instrument that's going to hurt him? Am I a terrible father? No. And if some of you are thinking, that's a good idea, <laughs> then you're a little bit too tight, all right? We, we need to talk to you a little bit. No. We let them go, and we know those things are happening, but we recognize that we can't keep them and that it's more important that they live. And if they're hurt, if an accident happens, that's part of life that we can't control. But the other side would be imprisonment. The other side would not be not really living at all. I just thought of something. Teenagers don't use that as an illustration when you're 16 for a driver's license. But nevertheless, you get the point. Jesus is speaking here in uh, one of, I, I would say, one of the best theodicy passages in all of Scripture, certainly in the Gospels. Jesus is speaking here. He's been teaching and he's talking. And he's going to address uh, a couple of situations, a couple of tragedies, because he knows this. First of all, they're asking the wrong question. And number two, they have the wrong results. They have the wrong mindset, the wrong understanding. And then he's going to help us. And he's going to allude to what the right question is and what the right response is. He's going to tell us literally what the right response is. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, beginning with the first verse. Luke, chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. And we'll see the wrong question and the wrong response. And Jesus lets us know the right question and the right response as we consider that question. Why? God. Beginning in chapter 13, verse 1 in the Gospel of Luke, the Bible says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans. Now, who are the Galileans? First of all, Jesus is considered a Galilean because he grew up in the Galilean area. And those were, very often, they thought of them as kind of the people across the tracks. Yes, they worship Yahweh, but they're not, you know, they're not the pristine righteous folks. They're the Galileans. But nevertheless, they were worshipers of Yahweh, and they had come on the great holy day to make sacrifices. And he said, he told them about the Galileans. Someone said, you know, what about these Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? What occurred here is Pilate, who by the way was a quite ruthless and violent man. We sometimes get a misrepresentation of Pilate when we're watching 
the Jesus stories or the crucifixion story, and we see Pilate as someone who seems to be sympathetic to Jesus, but just kind of gets pushed into this crucifixion. Hey, let me tell you, that's not who Pilate was at all. He was ruthless. Matter of fact, he was known for coming down with a hammer really hard, of crucifying people, of killing people, of making examples of people. That's who he was. He ruled by fear and intimidation. And that's why he's been placed here in Jerusalem at this time. And so Pilate, apparently some Galileans had come in and there was some kind of a little bit of, of rebellion that had transpired. And we don't know if it had anything at all to do with these Galileans. Matter of fact, it seems to uh, favor the, the view that they didn't have anything to do with it. But whether they did or not, what happens is they are offering their sacrifices and Pilate kind of just goes a little bit too hard and he orders his troops to begin uh, to make examples and to, to uh, get rid of some of the folks and literally kill some of them. And that's what they do. And so they kill these. These are people that are, obviously, they're not fighting at the time, but they're offering their sacrifices. Maybe there was some kind of charge against them in the past, but they're literally killed in the act of worship. While they're offering their sacrificial blood, their blood is taken and it sim- somehow spills upon the altar along with the sacrifices that are being offered. And so that's the background, that's the story. And Jesus answers to them. He answers those who are asking this theodicy question, this why do you think this happened, God question. And he answers them and he said, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Do you think, in in our terms today, do you think... The people in Las Vegas? Do you think the people at First Baptist Church Sutherland, uh, do you think that they were worse sinners than you, than me? Let me answer this question. Jesus answers the question. You know what the very next word he says in verse 3? He says, no. You're not better. You're not more righteous. It's not that they were worse sinners. He literally says, no, in verse 3. And then he says something extremely interesting. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. I don't know that that's what I would have said. It's not one that we're taught in seminary to use for a funeral. But you know why? Because we really don't understand what the word repent means. Typically, most people think of repent, repentance, and we're talking about biblical repentance in the Greek. The word is metanoia. Typically, when we think about repentance, we think about you ought to feel really bad about yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You stole that. You lied. You did whatever you did. Don't you feel off? I, I want to see some real remorse. And that's typically what we think of repentance, somebody feeling really bad about what they've done. But that's not biblical repentance. That's regret. Regret. And certainly, there are times when we sin when we ought to have regret for what we've done. We feel terrible about what we've done. But you would be missing the largest part of what biblical repentance means, what metanoia means. Metanoia means this. It means a change of heart and mind. A change of mind and heart. It's changed. I was thinking or acting one way, but now I'm going to act a different way. I have knowledge. I have an understanding. Last week, matter of fact, the guy came up to me 
after last week, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm convicted because I, I recognize I'm a bigot, and I, I want to confess that. And, uh, and then he shared the story. He said, you know, God is working in my heart and transforming my heart. And then he told me some steps that he took this week. That was metanoia. What regret would have been, you know, I, I really shouldn't be like that. Hey, I've done that in the past. Let's go get some lunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? I sure am terrible. That's not repentance. Metanoia means stepping into embracing Christ. Every time something, when something good happens, I step in and I go, God, it's only because of you. When something bad happens, God, I need you. It's your recognition for God and you stepping into him and you embracing him. We should live a life of repentance, of metanoia. You know what was the first thesis that was put on the door? You know, this is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And Martin Luther put 95 theses on the door. And what was the very first one? Repentance. Repentance. A change of heart and embracing Christ. A recognizing of our need for God. That's what real repentance is. And so that's why Jesus is saying, no, it's not because they're worse because they're bad Christians or they're evil or they're terrible people. That's not what it is. But let me tell you, this, this is a wake-up call. When anything like this happens, you know what you need? You need to step toward Christ and go, God, but by the grace of God, there go I. That could be me. Lord, I, I embrace you. I recognize my need. I recognize my sin. I'll never forget. Uh, I had a neighbor come over one time years ago and was sharing the gospel with them. And I'll never forget what they said. They said, um, well, first of all, I want to let you know that I'm not really a sinner. <laughs> well, I am. I'm not really a sinner, number one. And number two, I don't really have this big need for God. That is the antithesis of repentance. And honestly, that's where ultimately all of our sin and dysfunction comes from. Our lack of recognition of our great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we need him, that we need his grace. There's nothing we could do to earn or deserve it. We're not that good, and we need him. And every time something good happens, we ought to step forward and say, God, thank you. And it causes me to repent and say, I need to be even more grateful for who you are and for all that you are. And when something tragic happens, God, I recognize I need you even more. And I step towards you, oh God. That's what biblical repentance is. That's what biblical metanoia is. He says, if you don't recognize your need, if you don't recognize it, you will perish. The word perish is, there's a lot of different debate about the exact meaning of it, but we know this at a minimum, that it is the absence of God, is the absence of his presence, of his goodness. It is the end fate apart from God. You will be absent of the presence of God. You will be absent of him totally if you do not repent. And then he gives another illustration in verse 4. He gives another example. He said, okay, so those are the Galileans. You probably were thinking, well, you know, they live over there anyway, and they're not as faithful, and they're kind of uncouth and uncultured, and whatever, they're not as wealthy as we are. Obviously, God's blessed us because we're good. So then he brings one into the holy city. He gives an example here in verse 4. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. So apparently there was a wall there 
next to Salam. My wife and I have been there. Uh, it was a place where still many people come. People have come there for healing. People had come there for multiple reasons. It's always a crowded place. Uh, and so there are a lot of people praying, a lot of people that are righteous that are there, so to speak. But the wall was constructed, and we don't know if there was a flaw in the design or the way that somebody built it. Again, we live in a fallen world, literally. And this wall falls and kills 18 people. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Do you think this was the worst 18 people in Jerusalem? These were the worst 18 Jerusalemites, so to speak. Do you think that's what it was? Is that what you're thinking? You're thinking they got it because if you were good, God owes you a, a good life and he'll protect anything like that from happening to you. But what does Jesus say again? No. No, they're, they're not worse sinners. You're, you're not better than they were. That's not the reason. No. I tell you, but unless you repent. You thought the Galileans needed to repent. I'm saying you need to repent. You need to metanoia. You need to recognize your great need for God. And you need to step toward him. You need to recognize that um, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You likewise will perish, no matter how good you think you are. No matter how many deeds of righteousness, if you don't recognize your need for me. That's what metanoia is. He continues. He gives this parable. He gives this story to illustrate. And he said, a man had a fig tree and he planted a vineyard. In this this figurative parable, the man is God. The fig tree is in the vineyard. the, The fig tree is uh, the Israelites were us today, I believe. You can put your name in there. And then the vine dresser is Christ. And he said, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I have none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone. This is Jesus speaking on our behalf. This year, until I dig around it and put some fertilizer, manure, and fertilize it, then it will, then if it should bear fruit next year, well, good, but if not, you can cut it down. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a season. God is offering you grace and mercy that it was not you. You should be thankful, you should embrace God. And you should recognize your need for him. If you're a believer, you recognize my opportunity to bear fruit. If I'm an unbeliever, that I need him. But either way, I, either way, the principle stands, metanoia, that I need you, Lord. And I am stepping toward you. I recognize my need. And I am coming to you. You know, as we look at Scripture, there were many who had a very repentant heart and they still died. Stephen we see in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts, because of his faith, because he believed, and because of his confession, he stoned. Andrew and Peter, because of their proclamation of the gospel, and they will not relent, they are crucified, and legend tells us they were crucified upside down. Polycarp, he's the the man who probably uh, recorded for John, because John was older when the gospel of John and Revelation was being written. He probably is the one, he was his personal assistant, who wrote the words down for John as he dictated them to him. And he was a godly, he was an older man. He was somewhere around 80, 85 years old. And they told him that he was going to have to burn incense to the emperor as a divine emperor. And he said he wouldn't do it. 
And so they burned him at the stake and they killed him. Polycarp, was it because of his sin? Was it was because he was unrighteous? No, it was actually because he was righteous. And the stories continue, where it be Wycliffe, Tyndale, the Nag Hammadi who were killed in Egypt because they were believers in Christ Jesus. So many. It reminds me of the story in Daniel chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. Nebuchadnezzar is the great king. He rules over all the known world at that time, and he's taken captive the Israelites. And there are three teenagers that are in his service, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, do not bow when the graven image, and many think of uh, probably once something was made to look a bronze, something like Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone is supposed to fall down and worship, show their allegiance and their worship toward him, but they will not stand, they will not kneel. So they gather him up, they bring him before the king, and he said, Nebuchadnezzar tells him, let me tell you something, boys. And these, they're literally our boys. They're 16, 17, 18 years old. We're not sure of their age, but they are young. And he says to them, he goes, look, music's going to play, and if you don't kneel down, immediately you're going to be cast into the fire, immediately. And there's no God that can save you there. Shadrach says to him, he said, look, O king, we don't need to think about this. We've already made our decision. We will not bow. And our God can deliver us from your hand. He can deliver us from the furnace. But he says this, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your idol. Even if he doesn't. We know that he can. We know he has the power. We know he has the sovereignty. But if he chooses not to, we still will not bow. Job said, though you slay me, Lord, yet will I trust you. That's a true picture of repentance, of metanoia. God, even if it doesn't work like one, even if you, I don't get the protection plan I had anticipated, even if it doesn't work for me, God, I will draw into you. I will metanoia. I will allow it to, for me to embrace you further. And if it means that I die for my faith, so be it. Even if you don't, I will trust you. At the end of Jesus' preaching ministry, preparing his disciples for the end, Jesus shared this word with his followers in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you may have tribulation, but I want to give you peace. And what he means there is biblical peace. It's not that you got this peaceful, easy feeling thing. It's that you know ultimately that God is in charge and that it will be made right. I have that peace and confidence for knowing how this all ultimately will end. And that there will be tribulation. Jesus lets us know right there. We see it in Luke chapter 13. We see it here in John chapter 16 verse 33. There will be tribulation. There will be hard times. There will be tragedies. There will be disasters. But take heart. I have over.
overcome the world through the power of the gospel. The gospel that says, you know what? We're all sinners. We're all desperately in need. Do we recognize our need? And do we draw into him? That's repentance. To a holy God. To a perfect and sinless God who's made a way through Jesus who was perfect. Do we draw in and embrace him? Do we metanoia? And when we do, here's the promise that he leaves us with. There's two things that gives us that peace, that hope. Number one, the resurrection. That Jesus conquered sin and death. And that for all who believe in him, for all who put their trust and faith in his name, one day he will resurrect all those who've gone before us. We will all stand before him in resurrection power. Be of good cheer for I've overcome this world. This is not the end. This is a season. But the true joy, the true life that I intended for you to know in fullness is still yet to come. Be of good cheer. I have overcome. And secondly, it's not just that he gives us a new life. It's not just that he's going to resurrect us. Number two, he's going to redeem every tragedy, every injustice, every tear, every pain, every sorrow, every act of injustice. He's going to redeem it for his glory. That's what he's going to do. Be of good cheer. I've overcome. And one day, you're going to be rewarded for the injustices. You're going to be rewarded for the suffering and for the pain. Anything in my name, there is great reward. I'm going to redeem it. This is not the way it ends. You only see right now through a glass dimly. But recognize that one day, I will overcome this world. Are you ready for that? Do you know him have you received the power of the gospel? Have you metanoia? Have you recognized your need? And have you embraced his grace and forgiveness through the person of Jesus Christ? The gospel is simply this. We're all sinners. He's perfect. Grace has been given. Embrace it. Embrace him today. Have you done that? I challenge you to if you don't know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Thank you for your great grace, your great love. God, thank you that, God, you are drawing toward us and you are drawing us. And Lord, I pray that today we would repent. We would recognize our need, whether being believer or unbeliever, and recognize our need for you. And Lord, let you begin to transform our heart into the image you so desire, into your image. Christ, for anyone that doesn't know you today, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would bring conviction to their heart to step toward you and embrace you, to let go of their sin and their past and to say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Be my Savior. Lord, for believers everywhere, Lord, let us not be like the fig tree, Lord, that we have made the statements, have the right thought, but, Lord, we've not truly repented. We are not living a life of repentance. We're not drawing near to you in good times nor bad. We find ourselves as apathetic and fruitless. Lord, let us, Lord, through the power of the gospel, bear fruit to those who need to taste the sweetness of the Lord and see that he is good. Those who need to experience the resurrection power and for a God who redeems all things for them who call him Lord, we say thank you. God, we are of good cheer today because we know you have overcome the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.